0: Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. Thanks for tuning in and joining our River Talks community. This season, we're bringing you something a little different. Instead of recording live River Talks, we've switched it up and hosted interviews with a variety of guests. The talks were recorded on Zoom, so just a heads up if the audio sounds a bit different. This week, we were joined by Roger Lindsay with Metro Water Services. He spoke alongside some photos, so you can check out his full presentation and reference photos on our YouTube channel. Now to this week's River Talk. All right, everybody, welcome to River Talks, our online interview version for this year. I'm Katherine Price, the River Talks Program Manager. We also have Will Kaplanor, our, the Compact's Green Infrastructure Program Manager on our call today. And today we're joined by Roger Lindsey, who is the Floodplain Manager with Metro Water Services here in Nashville. So as many as of us know, in May of 2010, Nashville and the surrounding area experienced severe flooding across the city. And this year, 2020, actually commemorates those 10 years since the flood. Originally, organizations across the city were planning to honor and remember those that lost their lives in the flood, celebrate the hundreds and thousands of volunteers that that worked to clean up after the flood, and commemorate the work that has been done since 2010. Of course, COVID-19 has put a pause and really a full stop on much of that. But today, Roger will share a bit about how the city has responded in the 10 years since the flood, including new low impact development guidelines, Mm. stormwater infrastructure, floodplain buyouts, and all the other work that they've been doing. So I'm gonna turn it over to Roger now to introduce sort of those, what was going on on those days um, leading up to the flood and what happened um, in May of 2010. So thank you, Roger.
1: Okay, great, thank you, Catherine. Uh, so I usually start off. Uh, any any good presentation about the flood typically uh, is defined by those pictures that were in the Tennessee, and I give the Tennessee credit for the the photography here. Portable classroom floating down the interstate. That's 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 that was that was defined on the national news, and it really kind of woke people up, I think, to the severity of what was going on. Obviously, the playing elevation of the Titan Stadium is below ground level, so it 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 was a a quick victim of, of the flood water as the, as the water came out of the Cumberland River. The Shermerhorn Symphony Center sustained in excess of $40 million worth of damage, including the loss of two Steinway Grand Pianos that cost $100,000 a piece. They were in the basement. The power went out. They couldn't get the, the pianos out of the basement. So,
0: Awesome. Thank you, Roger. So I was wondering if you could kind of um, describe exactly what was going on over those two days, May 1st and 2nd, that led up to this extreme amount of flooding.
1: Certainly. And, and it's not like we all thought, well, this is going to be the big one, um, because in the days and, and actually literally months, the three months prior to the weekend of May 1st and 2nd, we had only had anywhere between 40 and 80 percent of our normal precipitation. It was a dry time, essentially. And You look at the U.S. drought monitor for that, uh, that week, April the 27th, it shows that we were abnormally dry middle Tennessee. But we knew there was a big storm coming. Uh, We always follow the National Weather Service predictions. This was a three-day prediction and on Friday night this QPF QPF is a quantitative precipitation forecast. This uh, forecast said we expect almost six inches of rain over the next three days. Uh, By Saturday morning that QPF had changed. It was a little more intensive. I said whoa eight uh, you know about eight and a quarter inches uh going to fall in the next three days uh so so the rain indeed did fall it began to fall on the the first of uh of may you can kind of see the totals of that rain there was you know a little over four inches of rain up in the old hickory area and about six inches of rain across a lot of the middle tennessee and the percy priest area antioch had a little more at eight inches of rain in franklin the The brighter white area down there had 12.3 inches of rain on that Saturday. Uh, The rain quit overnight, and on Sunday morning it started again. And on Sunday, another seven inches of rain fell on Nashville and the Percy Priest and the Antioch area, nine and a half inches up at the old Hickory Lock and Dam area, and then Franklin topped it off with another five and a half inches of rain. So when you look at the two day pattern for Nashville, not Franklin where there was more rain, but in Nashville, um, about six inches of rain on Saturday and another uh, 7.2 inches of rain on Sunday. And so we look at that rain event as, as, as having happened over about a 36 hour period. You know, a day and a half time, uh, we got some 13 or so inches of rain. And this gives you the total totals for those two days, Nashville about thir- 13 and a half. Uh, Franklin got almost 18 inches of rain. Antioch area, 16 inches of rain. So you can see kind of where it fell. One of the things that we like to look at when we, when we look at where the rain fell, and there's there's always discussion about um, about the, the management of the dams, you know. Could the dams hold water back? Those kinds of things. A it, it, great bit of that rain that fell in the Nashville and Williamson County area fell downstream of those reservoirs. Uh, while there was a lot of rain at the reservoirs, uh, the bulk of the rain fell downstream of those reservoirs. And then you start looking at the totals. And then and then from the National Weather Service perspective, there's anywhere from 16 to 20 inches of rain that fell on great parts of the western Nashville or the western Tennessee uh third of the state, uh, even more so than than, than Nashville. Uh and then and from the perspective again from the National Weather Service, when we look at average recurrence intervals for a 48-hour duration, that entire red band all the way back to the Mississippi River shows that it was a greater than 1,000 year recurrence interval for this rain event over a 48 hour period. So it was a monster storm, a monster event. Uh, and then when, from the perspective of FEMA and our damage assessments, there were 44 counties that were included in the das- disaster declaration for, for the state. Uh, we look at the flooding summary. We there was a, a sharp response on Saturday, and the and the hydrograph came back down below that flood stage, and then and then it responded again on Sunday with another good bump. And then you see the example of Mill Creek how when you look at historical major flood stages that this was far in excess of even the 1979 event, which was a fairly uh, very significant storm event and flood event, in the Mill Creek portion of the city, not citywide, but primarily in Mill Creek. Um, And then from the perspective of the Cumberland River, um, you can see how the hydrograph rises above the flood stage. It rises above on Sunday. It goes almost 12 feet above the 40-foot flood stage and didn't go back below flood stage until Thursday evening. And this was the highest stage since 1937. Now, this is considered to be the greatest levels of flood stage since the river has been controlled. And many of the dams that are on the Cumberland River, all of the dams, they were all built in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And so that's the controlled component of this. This is the biggest event we've had since the dams were built and began to be used either for navigation or flood control or what have you. Um, There were a lot of bigger events going back. We've seen, upwards of 200 years of record that the Corps of Engineers has, and there were some bigger events, but the river functions differently when they're not flood control or dam uh, structures along that river, but that gives you kind of a sense. There were almost 11,000 properties damaged in that event, and almost 6,000 of those properties are located outside of the 100-year floodplain. This is such a it's such a strong message that we, that we deliver all the time. People think, well, if I'm outside the floodplain, I shouldn't have problems with flooding. And the reality is the flood that occurred in 2010, whether it was a 500-year event or a 1,000-year event, um, the fact is that, it, especially in places like in Bellevue, um, the, the Harpeth River was almost eight feet above the 100-year flood elevation. And so thousands of homes that were outside the floodplain had as much as four to six to even eight feet of water in those homes. Um, so being outside the floodplain is not a guarantee that you won't flood. That that whole that whole floodplain concept is really the flood insurance rate maps. We look at them really more as they define where where and how you regulate construction in floodplains. But those are insurance products too. They're not flood. Protection uh, maps. You you can't be guaranteed you won't flood if you're not in the floodplain. Again, from a business perspective, almost 3,000 businesses sustained damage, uh, affecting 14,500 employees, uh, and 3.6 billion dollars in annual revenue. And the Opryland Hotel, and of course, just to the south of that is the Opry Mills Mall, and it was out. The Opry Mills Mall was out of operation for two years. Significant economic impact on the city. Um, from the perspective of property damage you can see the spread of damaged parcels obviously most most all those parcels are along the creeks and rivers but but when you have that much rain in a short period of time you can have a lot of sheet flow flooding as well so uh, we had people with home with with water in their basements and they complain, well i'm not even on the creek now how did i get water in my basement well masses of water flowing across your yard it's going to follow the low spots and so you can be damaged by a significant uh, extreme rain event even if you don't live next to a creek or a river and then there were fatalities in Nashville I think there were over there were some twenty six across the state and eleven of those occurred in Nashville about half of them occurred in in cars where people were cars were swept off the road uh, several uh, were were people that were just walking or outside I actually think that the couple of of Red stars over on the Mill Creek area um, may have been were, there. Were there were a couple of teenagers I think that thought it would be a great sport to put uh, inner tubes in in the creek and and ride the the wave of the of the flood and and um, they uh, they were victims of the flood. Um, so after the flood, we talk about resilience. The kinds of things we did. Uh, it was a it was a, a shock and and a and a stunning. Uh, event for all of us that were working in the development services group at at metro um, because our normal job was to permit homes for construction or permit permit buildings for construction and all of a sudden we were dealed dealing with um with having to to do damage assessments and to issue permits for people to reconstruct after the flood so there was a lot of post disaster response that that literally went on for or um, in excess of a year. Uh, We were still dealing with flood issues in a couple of years after uh, after the flood and um, a lot of repair of public infrastructure. We'll talk a little more about our water treatment plants, the Shermerhorn, the the Opryland Hotel, those kinds of things and a lot of private property. Uh, Buyouts, uh, we had already implemented a buyout program some years prior to that and had removed a number of houses that, that seemed to routinely flood. Uh, we think there were about 90 houses that were purchased and demolished, removed uh, prior to the flood, and we've bought another 300 houses since then. And in fact, this just this past week, we had a, a demolition contractor uh, taking down another 13 houses. So it's a continuing program that uh, that's is as active today as it was, you know, 10 years ago when we started really going, af- going after flood-damaged houses. Um, as, we, as we evaluated flood-damaged houses, we had to, to, to make sure that if your house was more than 50% damaged, that constituted by FEMA rules, substantially damaged. If you were substantially damaged, we could permit you to rebuild, but it had to be built in accordance with the floodplain ordinance. In a lot of cases, that meant houses had to be elevated so that the floor level was four feet above the 100-year flood elevation. Um, there was a lot of I talked about the private mitigation, the Opelând and Shermerhorn, uh, the development of Nashville Safe, Nashville Nerve, uh, and additional flood modeling, and then the issuance of new flood insurance rate maps.
0: Thanks, Roger, for that that context of of kind of everything that was going on during that time period. And I think you know we see a lot of those photos, and and it's um, but it's always a good reminder to see them again, and and then to understand both the human impact of this event and seeing those people and then obviously seeing kind of all the data that that brought to this point so one of the programs that you talked about a little bit was the floodplain buyout program and so um, I'm actually going to turn it over to Will because I know he has worked a little bit um, with Metro Water on the floodplain buyout and so we'd love to just kind of hear a little bit about that project as well so Will do you want to talk about that really quick?
2: Definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, Roger, could you tell us a little bit about the uh, floodplain buyout program um, within Nashville and how it actually impacts uh, our resilience to future flooding? Um, you know, like, like why are we targeting certain houses? Uh, how, how does that positively impact uh, flooding issues?
1: Okay, sure. Um, so when we started the floodplain buyout program, um, we, we, many people, thousands of people would like to have been bought out in those months after the flood. And the reality was there was nowhere near enough money to to accommodate everybody that, that would want uh, for you to buy their home. Um, So we actually, we actually uh, defined a criteria. We, we, we established that given the, the, the dollars that we anticipated that would be available, that that we would focus on homes that were substantially damaged, more than 50% damaged, and that were located um, in the floodplain. And so, uh, again, we we talked about the fact that many houses were outside the floodplain. Well, if you're outside the floodplain, you you can get a permit to to reconstruct, never mind what your damage level is. Uh, um, uh, the, The criteria for substantial damage only applies to houses in the floodplain. Um, and so we felt like focusing on, and even more, actually more stringent than that, the floodway. The floodway is within the, the, the borders of the floodplain. It's, it's the area of, more, um, of higher velocity flow and, and more danger. And there are a lot of houses that were built even prior to, to the, the initial development of flood maps in Nashville. Those are houses that were built in floodways of creeks. And so that actually established a a shorter list of some 300 or so houses that we thought would be eligible for buyouts. And then as we began to look at the amount of funds that were available, the HMGP funds, that's a FEMA grant program that uh, utilizes FEMA dollars to buy out homes. And it can only be used if there is a presidential disaster declaration in place. And so Having gotten that disaster declaration, uh, it opened the door for us uh, to significant funds. Where we started the purchase of the first uh, couple of hundred homes, um, there were actually some 230 or 40 homes uh, where we we had willing sellers. Uh, homeowners that were, were prepared. And and a, and a lot of times when you get into home bouts, uh, sometimes those, the program can lag a little bit. It takes a while to get all the, the pieces and parts in place and, and get the program working. Um, some people don't want to wait that long. Uh, a lot of people uh, had actually started flood repair of their homes. And, and if you go back to them a year later and say, would you like to sell your house as a, in, in a buyout program? They go like, well, no, I'm already back in the house. We've already fixed it up. We don't want to leave now. We like our neighborhood. We like our neighbors. Uh, we're not going anywhere. Um, so so that's, that's been the, the uh, kind of the approach that we've taken. Uh, the FEMA grant money um, is, is something that's available. There's, there's almost always some kind of a disaster declaration going on. Uh, It can be a, it can be an ice storm uh, in the middle of the winter. It can be, and, and as, as the Tennessee emergency management, they kind of regulate that program and they will call us at the end of the year and say, we've got some money left over. Can you, can you give us an application to cover it and we'll give you additional dollars. And we've done so many of these that we're, we're, we're fairly adept at getting those applications put together on short notice. Um, and we will use money from any disaster that's declared in the state of Tennessee um, to capitalize on more more dollars to uh, to get more houses. Uh, there have been some local dollars. the city council, I think two years ago, actually budgeted five million dollars. Uh, and we use those dollars um, for opportunities. if If we found a, a chance, uh, a chance to pick up a house here or there or even a group of houses, we like to get big clumps of houses if we can, uh, because it, it it prevents that kind of checkerboard, you know, a house here, a house there, a house across the street kind of a thing. We'd, we'd rather take out lots of houses. Uh, and then the last source, the USACE, the Corps of Engineers, Army Corps of Engineers, basin planning, we've got basin planning going on in every basin in the city now, major basins. And, uh, for example, the one that's progressing most right now is Mill Creek, and we have 88 houses identified in Mill Creek to take to take out. They're repetitive loss houses, and it's interesting as you approach those homeowners and you say, you know, your house is identified in this Corbin engineer study as being a potential target for for removal, and they're the some significant percentage of them are, are all in, all in. They they yeah, I'm you know I've flooded before and. I'll probably flood again. And yes, I'd like to because because in, in all of these different cases, we're able to offer fair market value for those homes on what the whole neighborhood is worth. So when you look at what we've been able to accomplish, the Corps of Engineers Basin Planning continues on. Uh, this is an example along Richland Creek, uh, Delray Drive East. We bought bought and demolished every house that's shown in green right there. And those those were houses that were in the floodway uh, of, um, Richland Creek. It's all part of the nations. That entire area west on the west side of Delray is all, is all parks. It's parkland. It's, it's operated by the, by the parks department here in Nashville. Uh, there's, there are walking trails. There's a, there's a little playground in there and a covered pavilion. And it's a perfect use for being at, when you, when you look at the ability to capture that many contiguous properties. It's a, it's a great example of a buyout. This was another, well, this is one of our early buyouts on Blackman. This was pre-flood, but it's a case where these, these five lots were covered with duplexes that seemed to flood about every other year. They just flooded over and over again. And even prior to the flood, we used them some FEMA grant dollars and were able to take out those houses. And this is an example that kind of became a community garden in that area. And, and there were several parcels, uh, several of the places around the community that we, that we bought that, that became community gardens uh, or urban farms, uh, as some are called. Um, some don't continue to operate in that fashion. Um, but but it's certainly a use, you know, a park or or a community garden is a great use for something you've bought out. This is up in North Nashville along Ewingdale Drive. Those their original parcels don't show up on this, but that entire light green area was uh, was totally developed with homes, just like the 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 area across the street. And again, pre 2010 flood, these were all homes that flooded multiple times and. And we bought and, and removed all those. <clears throat> this, this, there's not a community use for this area, uh, but it it provides one of the classic things. it's It's the restoration of a, a, a of a natural area along a creek, and it 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 has enormous benefit from a stormwater perspective. It filters out pollutants and nutrients and things like that. and it's it's just a it's a great way to to take people out of harm's way. This was one uh, along Gibson Creek up in uh, in East Nashville. Uh, we had a big rain event in in the Gibson Creek area some years ago, um, in around 2013, I believe. And we came back after the fact and, and have used a lot of local dollars. Um, this was not part of a disaster declaration. But it was an opportunity, if you will. it was a it was a chance to come in. This creek flowed down through this neighborhood, houses on narrow lots that just all backed up to that creek. Uh, a lot of those yellow lots were already empty, vacant properties in some cases because they they had you know they were constant victims of of the flooding of the creek. And so uh, we've been able to go in and buy a great number of these and take them out and uh, just kind of expand the natural area along the creek. Uh, but more important to take people out of harm's way. When you find areas like this along an Urban Creek, uh, for the most part, they're rental properties. Uh, owners don't stay in houses like that. And then, so they rent them to what we call new victims. Um, eventually, they're going to get, you know, they're going to wake up one morning and there's going to be water around their bed. So the next uh, major undertaking that we've gone through since um, the, uh, the flood is the remodeling and remapping of every major creek basin in this in the entire county and so the Corps of Engineers did all of the phases of modeling and this is the this is reestablishing redefining all new hydraulic models on these creeks <clears throat> that are then used to create new flood insurance rate maps and so the work that was done here led to the the development and the release in April of 2017 of 150 new flood insurance rate map panels. Uh, And so it's the entire county. And since then, just now, in essence, just in the last 30 days or so, we're in the process of of releasing preliminarily about 60 more panels, many of which are counted in this 150. Uh, But there are a lot of panels around the northern edge of the county. There are more rural areas, uh, areas that never had mapped floodplain, defined uh, flood elevations. And so this is just another step. Um, We've worked uh, extensively with the Corps and with FEMA um, uh, to keep what what really constitutes one of the most accurate and up-to-date sets of flood maps in, in the state, probably in the southeast United States. Um, it's a phenomenal tool when you're when you're regulating development in floodplains to be able to have this level of access and what, and and the way we create these maps is we use we use lidar which is a product of aerial photography it's it's uh, it's laser um, scanning flown at night it literally creates incredibly accurate topographic maps that are used to to develop these these um, uh hydraulic and hydrologic uh, models that lead us to the development of these new flood maps so that's a it's a huge step to be able to say that as as a post-flood activity that what we have done is create a a wonderful set of accurate flood maps um, that we use to regulate development in the city the next big product uh, that started literally months after the flood Nashville SAFE, that's an acronym for Situational Awareness in Flood Events. Uh, It's a flood forecasting and response tool that we use uh, when the uh, Emergency Operations Center is activated during an extreme weather event, if we expect a lot of rain. And we've had events like the the Remnants of Harvey storm that dropped 10 inches of rain in the Whites Creek Basin um, literally in one afternoon and evening. Uh, uh, to, to say that, that a, a flood of the magnitude of the 2010 flood will never happen again, it's just we have we have these big events over remote basins, not remote, but even just individual basins along, along in and around the city that cause the same kinds of issues that happened during the 2010 flood. So it's important to be able to react that way. Nashville Safe provides us that tool to do that. The Nashville Nerve, Nerve, again, an acronym for National Emergency Response Viewing Engine. That is a public information tool. Uh, and the Nashville Nerve um, is accessed by any, any resident. That's, it's accessible online, um, and you can look and see, it'll tell you exactly where all the shelters are. If you're in the midst of, of, a, of an episode of some kind, it'll tell, you, it'll tell you if you input your date, your address. Um, it will give you a routing to tell you how to get from your house to a shelter. Uh, it accommodates the facts that sometimes roads are closed and it'll route you around a closed road. Uh, it'll show you where all the different types of shelters are, disaster shelters. So it's kind of a general repository during the midst of an event. Doesn't have to be a flood, it can be any kind of an event. Uh, we would use Nashville Nerve. It's kept up to date in the emergency operations center, so we know where closed roadways are. and and uh, it's just a, a handy tool for a resident to use uh, if we're in the midst of a crisis. Of
0: a, of awesome. Thank you, Roger, for that um, look at kind of all those different techniques. And I know um, the Gibson Creek plant, that, that flood buyout, um, Will, do you want to talk a little bit just briefly about some of the work that I know the Compact has done in that flood buyout? Yeah, yeah,
2: totally, totally. So... Um I've been with the compact now a little over four years, and the first couple of those years, we um, we did a lot of buyout planting, specifically around like the Pennington Bend area. Um, but actually, these past couple planting seasons, we've been planting a few buyouts along Gibson Creek. So I think we've uh, we've worked on maybe five or six separate buyout sites there, uh, basically planting a lot of native uh, vegetation, just trying to make that. Um, that area more spongy and able to take on more storm water, basically.
1: And that's incredibly valuable because when we take out a house, we try to take out every component of that house. The driveway has gone. The sidewalks are gone there. If there are mature trees in the yard, we leave them, but often there there's more than enough opportunity to plant more trees.
0: Yeah. When those homes are taken down, you know, they're, Replaced with something, and so we've been able to plant trees and do different b- work on those those buyout properties.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um,
2: well, awesome, Roger. I think this kind of brings us to uh, kind of my next question. I was wanting to ask. Um, uh, so we know kind of what the flood mitigation work does, uh, or you know, at least what those buyouts uh, do to kind of impact um, uh, increasing porosity and that kind of thing. But what um, what kind of mitigation work are we doing at the water treatment plant? to protect uh, future flooding events?
1: Sure. Uh, there has been, because um, we had the, the initial response to the flood, there was a significant damage to the KR Harrington water treatment plant because it was flooded. Uh, it was out of operation for 30 days. Uh, it's astounding to bring a plant of that magnitude back online in only 30 days. But uh, there was a lot of, of uh, uh, of careful work done, uh, including just shutting the plant down before the water uh, poured into the plant and began to damage components of that plant. Um, so it, it's one thing to bring a plant back online line after a disaster. Uh, our Dry Creek uh, wastewater treatment plant up in the Rivergate area also flooded. It had a much longer recover period because of the, the type of damage that occurred up there. Uh, but we've been engaged now for recent years All the way up until like last summer um, uh, with the completion of some of the the major mitigation work on these plants. So mitigation we look at as we look forward um, rather than repairing damage that occurred on a certain time, mitigation says what can we do to that plant right now that puts it in greater stead, offers a higher level of protection, uh, prevents the level of damage in a future similar kind of a flood event. And so there were a number of components uh, of mitigation work that was done. Uh, for example, at Omohundro, we built a new substation, electrical substation, and, and a new switchgear system and power generating building. We, uh, we built a new access road into the water treatment plant. Um, and then there were a, a number of modifications to some of the pumping facilities and some floodproofing grouping that was done at the plant. Because while that plant continued to operate, that plant is capable of producing 90 million gallons of water, drinking water every day. Uh, the water from the river backs up against the backside of that pumping building. And there was some real, there was some real concern about, about the safety of that structure during the flood. One of the problems that happened during that flood is that the act, there was only, there's only two ways in and out of Omahundra. One along pump station road, pumping station road, and then the other is Cave Road coming in from the other side. Well, both of those roads were underwater uh, during the 2010 flood. And we, we literally, well, we, we, were, we maintained operation of that plant. Uh, there were power issues. Uh, we were greatly concerned that we'd lose uh, the uh, power to that plant. Uh, we lost access along Pumping Station Road. That water was, was, was so deep you couldn't drive through it. Metro now owns that entire site to the wet, to the south of Ommahunddro. we call it Omo south ommahunddra south it's uh, there are a number of metro facilities that that occupy that site, uh, including our our laboratory and our system services uh, facilities and a lot of parking and This used to be a, a big uh, auto auction site it was covered with a you know, hundred acres of asphalt for years and and um, we um, um, uh, had purchased that site some years ago and and we we used it extensively but it also provides a high access road into Omahandra. Um so it gives us good access under even high river conditions to to come into that plant um, the other thing that we did which is one of the things that's just amazing um, with the construction of the of the new switchgear and power generating facility, which is along that road. Uh, If you look back, you you can see new buildings uh, that were were constructed, a a power substation. Um, And so so what we did was we built a new uh, system of bringing power into that entire campus, not just the water plant, but all the other facilities. Uh, And um, the power comes into this uh, substation and then it's handled through this switchgear and and power generating facility. You can see the new substation. Um, we get a power feed of about 19,000 volts into this into this uh, substation, uh, where it's then split apart and sent to different parts of that that campus. Um, but we have the ability. When I show you these, um, the the switchgear. This this is a, a redundant switchgear system. The front half of those. Of those switching cabinets uh, do the exact same thing as the back half of those cabinets do. So it's a totally redundant system. Uh, if part, part of the system went out, we could fall back to the other half of it and not lose any of our access, um, our, our cap- features and capabilities. Um, this is the back half of that building. It's the generator building. So what this does is it allows us to go off of public power. We can, we can totally get off of TVA power uh, with only 60 seconds notice, we can drop totally off the grid and run this entire campus, including the Omahundra water plant without pulling public power. And we can do that. And we were actually doing that during the tornado um, in early March uh, where we dropped, if TVA calls us and tells us they've got power issues, uh, it could be in the heart of a of a of a of a protracted summer heat spell when when everybody's running their air conditioners and and power supply becomes an issue. They they can call us and within 60 seconds we'll drop totally off their grid and leave them to provide their power to other customers. Uh, and as a result of having that kind of a relationship with TVA, we get a much better rate all the time on our power. Uh, we're we're one of their largest users. Um, but we have the ability uh, to produce our own power for as long as we need to produce it. And we do it right here. Um, this is one of the big caterpillar generators. So we just, we're just we able to produce that power by the use of these generators. And here's another shot that shows there are four of these large caterpillar generators within that generator building. And, and then outside the building, we've got our fuel tanks. Um, these are 25,000 gallon fuel tanks. And of course, now with good access coming in off the interstate, as long as we can bring in tanker trucks of diesel fuel, we can run um, uh, that, that entire campus uh, for as long as we need to run it uh, by feeding those generators with these fuel tanks. So it's, it's a, um, an amazing system. Um, so last year, last summer, we had uh, a number of people come in to tour. We had the former FEMA administrator, Craig Fugate. He was the administrator of FEMA for for the full eight years of uh, Barack Obama's term as president. Uh, we were able to bring him in um, to tour that facility. Uh, and then also our TEMA director, Patrick Sheehan, he was part of that tour as well. And uh, they came out to, to look at this. What And, and then what FEMA, um, Craig, what? Uh, Craig Fugate, he describes this as, as hardening, hardening your utility. So we're doing things to our utility that makes us less reliant on on elements that we can't control. And so in um, K.R. Harrington, we did much the same, uh, the same thing at Harrington. Of course, Harrington, this is K.R. Harrington. It's out right at the confluence of the Stones River and the Cumberland River. It's, it's in the heart of the floodplain down there. That's, that's typically where we build water and wastewater plants. It's close to the river. When we build back <clears throat> on like a plant like this, we want to build it at the 500 year flood level plus two more feet. Uh, and that's what we did in, in this case. This, uh, the, the raw water pump station, all of the chemical feed systems, the, uh, the, uh, the hothouse and power uh, system is all built um well above levels that uh, that would would flood we elevated all of our feed systems these all these these chemical feed systems that provide the treatment for that water treatment plant uh they were all located previously they were located in a basement of this filtration building now they're all located in a in a new structure um that's well above uh, flood levels and protected and and uh, so uh, well, while this site can still get water on it like it, like it did in 2010, uh, these are components of this plant that will never get wet again. So if there was a similar event, instead of being out of operation for 30 days, it may be that the plant only is out of operation for 10 days. Um, and there were a lot of, of components of this plant that were, that were waterproofed, floodproofed, uh, we knew that we had a lot of water that got into the interior parts of this plant by flowing through electrical conduit that ran between buildings. And all those conduits now have been sealed in a way that will not allow water to to, to to enter those conduits. So that's kind of what we've we've done a lot of that type mitigation. These are these are some of the most impressive components of that. Um,
0: Yeah. And I know I last year, right around this time last year, got to go on a tour of that KR Harrington water treatment plant. And it was really amazing. They showed where that high water line was in 2010. And you're looking at it and it's like, you're like, how is that? You know, you can totally see the impact that that had because of where those generators are you were just looking at. So if you ever get a chance to go on that tour, um, anybody, it's a really eye-opening look at how Uh, not just how water gets to us in Nashville, but also the impact that that flood had on how we built our water treatment plant.
1: Since you mentioned that, uh, there's a Citizens Water Academy that will allow you to go on tours of our water treatment plants and some of our, our, the old 8th Avenue uh, storage tank on the top of the hill. You can see these facilities so Sign up for the Water Academy.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. You can support the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks program and podcast by donating today. You can find a link in our show notes. Um, well, I'm going to turn it back over to Will for kind of our final um, questions here for you, Roger, that we got from some of our members that, that wrote in that had questions about Nashville um, since the flood.
2: Uh, can could share how the implementation of these policies um, are going to help Nashville uh, be resilient with future flooding events. I know we've had, you know, some flooding events since 2010, but nothing really on that scale. So, you know, if if and when right. that does occur again, how is Nashville going to react a little different, or uh, what have we learned from past?
1: Right. The there right. has What's been a flood there right. has What's been a, there's been a lot of interest in low impact LID, and if I, I'll show you this, this is low impact development. This is this is one of our stormwater management manuals. Uh, you can go on our website and download or or just look at, read, download, print, whatever any of our five, we have five stormwater management manuals here at Nashville, and this is volume five. It uh, has been developed, uh, was completed in 2016. We have a program that allowed us um, to define um, uh, processes to use low impact uh, features to handle stormwater. And so this manual defines you know, how those, those features must be designed and developed and implemented uh, it's, a, it's a mandatory requirement now uh, because when our, when our NPDES permit was reissued in 2016, uh, in con- working in con- conjunction with TDAC, um, we implemented a requirement that says that you've got to, when you, when you manage and control your stormwater runoff from a site, you've got to capture uh, and infiltrate the first inch of rain that falls. And so this is a manual that kind of helps you through that process. Um, We had it in in place on a voluntary basis for a couple years before 2016, and it was universally used. Everybody really, there was a lot of, instead of the old process of having a big stormwater detention basin in front of every building, new building in town, uh, this allowed the use of more natural features to to infiltrate stormwater. We're in the process right now of of upgrading all of our manuals, including this manual, um, but again, this this is uh, the requirement for low impact. is required for any new project unless unless a developer or engineer can demonstrate that there are restrictions on that site. Like if the site is completely if it's if it's if it's, if it's totally a rock site, um, if it's uh, if it's a former uh, brownfield site where an old industrial facility where there might have been um, some uh, hazardous materials in the soil. We we won't require that they try to infiltrate. We don't want that material to be any more uh, uh, introduced into the groundwater than, than 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 we can keep from happening. So so that's kind of the low impact development um, process uh, that um, that we use. the um, uh, The other thing that uh, uh, that we do is that. Uh, that we also regulate infill development now because you're all familiar with the the, the, the removal of homes and the replacement with new homes. Um, and so there's, a, there's an entire guidance uh, uh, manual as part of our stormwater manual um, that describes how you handle the stormwater treatment on an infill property. And each of these infill properties either have to, if they're above a certain size, they have to incorporate some low impact or green infrastructure uh, to provide for some infiltration of that that water, it may be a rain garden or, or um, uh, rain barrels or grassy swales or or dry wells. Or there's there's a whole series of different products um, that are listed: cisterns and rain, uh, French drains, permeable pavers. You may, uh, if they use permeable pavers for their parking area uh, that infiltrates water, then they they they're able to to get by with less um, uh, actual. Uh, requirement for, uh, uh, they can document that they have less impervious surface on the site. So I encourage everybody to look at those, those uh, guidance materials.
2: Definitely, definitely. I was going to say, we, we use this, this is in, integral for uh, our work, we, we, um, we, we really use this manual a lot. One thing I did want to ask Roger, um, did the flood of 2010 kind of spur this development of the manual or was this already in play? And then we developed it. I know uh, low impact development's not something that was developed. There were other states uh kind of already implementing this stuff. Was, was yeah, the there, flood? Is that kind of what
1: the the you know it happened after the flood? It, I don't know how much of a driver the flood actually was. It's kind of a movement of the within the industry to to move toward toward more low impact uh green infrastructure. Um and, and so a common question is how how does that, you know? Offset, you know, the the damage from the flood. Well, certainly a, a a green infrastructure, low impact type of treatment of stormwater runoff is going to infiltrate some water, but a, a flood the magnitude of the 2010 flood, there's there's no amount of infiltration that would offset you know, a flood of that magnitude. Um, smaller events, uh, it's not uncommon to get a two or three inch rain. Uh, a 10 inch rain uh, is kind of overwhelming as well. Um, we watch how Whites Creek just flows out of its banks with a 10-inch rain. Um, no amount of green infrastructure is going to really uh, prevent that. It may offset some minor part of it, but it certainly helps in a smaller basin with a smaller event. And uh, so, uh, but but I mean, it has so many other benefits. I mean, it, it serves to recharge groundwater. It, it uh, um, the the presence of that green infrastructure provides um, it, it provides um, uh, additional clean cleansing, uh, the filtration of, of, of pollutants and, and uh, sediment that's, that flows in, in water. It's going gonna, it's gonna to soak into the ground or it's going to be kind of, you know, if you've got green um, uh, natural areas along your creeks, you're protecting your buffer areas, those kinds of things. It's, it's going to benefit from that. won't prevent a, ma- a big flood, but certainly
0: uh, provides an enormous amount of benefit. Yeah, and and Roger, another question that we got from um, from Nicole, one of our our members, she wanted to know. Um, thinking about those low impact development guidelines, how do they? And maybe as you're modifying them, this is part of that conversation. How do they take into consideration that flooding events and extreme rainfall might become more common as we have uh, climate change impacting our Middle Tennessee region?
1: You know, again, and I, I mentioned earlier that 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 these events become you know, are are more common. It's more common to see these significant events. We talk about a 10 inch. We've had a couple of 10 inch rain events, hurricane, the remnants, what we call the hurt, the remnants of Harvey was I think about nine inches of rain in Whites Creek in in a day. Compare that to May of 2010. I mean, we had a five or six inch rain on one day followed by a six or seven inch rain the next day. Um, so it's, um, it's it's not significantly different the way we started off May of 2010, and it's and it certainly has an impact in Whites Creek. We may have, you know, we we may have scores of houses that are impacted by a, a, an eight or nine or 10 inch rain, just in one major creek basin. So, um, you know, these policies, uh, the policies of, of of judiciously protecting our our buffer areas uh, along the creeks, um, discouraging uh, a lot of development in floodplains. Um, while while it, it's, it's okay, it's permissible to build in a floodplain, uh, we've got some pretty rigorous um, uh, prohibitions against building in floodways now uh, that, that have come into place since the, the May 2010 flood. Uh, because those are just dangerous. It's a dangerous place to build. I mean, it's dangerous to property. It's dangerous to, to life. Um, and so, uh, we have a number of of uh, of of higher standards that we adhere to for for whatever reason. In 1979, when our first floodplain ordinance was passed, somebody had the idea of, of using a four-foot freeboard, saying that any residential property that was built in Nashville had to be built four feet above the base flood elevation, the 100-year flood elevation. Well that's almost unheard of across the country. And people, I see people at conferences all the time that say, how in the world did Nashville get a four foot freeboard set? And we're all like, well, that happened before our time, but it's it's admired universally across this country that, that it, it is such a conservative standard for construction. Um, and it's a standard that's existed for decades. And, and it's not a standard that's really questioned very much. There, there had been some cases back prior to the flood where occasionally a builder would come in and say, yeah, I, I I can't build to four feet above. Can I get a variance to build two feet above? And there were cases where some of those variances were granted. Um, in the case of some of those, uh, there were houses that got two feet more of water in them than they had to in, in May of 2010. Where, you know, so we, it's it's almost, um, unheard of that, that a variance from the four-foot freeboard would be granted in this day and time, especially with our experience with the flood. Yeah,
0: And and you kind of just highlighted a little bit of how progressive some of the policies are in Nashville. And we got a question from another person who works more in um, in sustainable transportation. And so he was sort of making some comparisons between the work that we've been doing in water versus transportation. And so his question was, what made Nashville really turn to these more progressive policies around stormwater engineering, for example, using green infrastructure? And are there ways and kind of lessons learned and best practices that could be applied to other types of um, engineering or public works projects?
1: There are. And I, you know, for, you know, kind of since the flood, um, and I don't, I, I, I stopped short of saying that it was driven by the flood, but you know one of the one of the classic green streets in in Nashville and and in the southeast is is Dedrick Street between the 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 courthouse the city courthouse and the um um and the and the state facilities and, you know it's a green street it's it's a divided street with lots of of tree planting wells and and features that allow the stormwater to be captured in in little detention wells on the sides of the street instead of just having a normal stormwater inlet um, that just carries the water into a pipe and, and down right. into the the big sewers under the city uh, to be dumped into the river. Uh, now there are opportunities to to divert divert that water into these these treatment um, wells and and the sidewalks are are pervious concrete and um, there are, there are a whole host of of really neat environmental. Uh, and, and green uh, features to that whole Dedrick Street area. And it's been featured in some magazine articles and things like that. that that's a great way um, to, to do forward looking things uh, to reduce the amount of water uh, that, that gets into the, the, the uh, stormwater system. You know, much of downtown, all the way back to Vanderbilt University and on the east side of the river as well, there are large expanses of, of our uh, land that is served by combined large, old, more than 100-year-old brick sewer systems that carry both water and uh, both the stormwater runoff and the wastewater that comes from all the buildings in, in downtown. And if you can keep water, stormwater um, from running into those, those brick sewers, then uh, ultimately, if it runs into those brick sewers, it has to be treated at the wastewater plant. So uh, it's, it's a significant benefit to the city uh, and the cost of our our treatment um, the, the power that it takes to run those those large wastewater treatment plants, uh, the big central plant on the north end of downtown um, if you can if you can infiltrate that water into a, a green nice green visually pleasing feature along the side of the road, um, then it doesn't go to the wastewater plant and have to be treated so
0: yeah uh, I think those, those demonstration projects, like you were saying with Diedrich Street in Nashville, have been really influential in sort of showing off how beneficial it can be, and then it starts to, to replicate. And so I think that that's something that Nashville in the world of water has done well, is doing these projects and seeing those benefits, and then they start to kind of replicate. Um, I know we've got a few more questions that we wanted to get to with you today, so I'm gonna turn it back over to Will.
1: Okay. You know, I, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this. The Music City Center has enormous features, environmental features. The green roof on the top. Um, uh, you can actually there's a place within the Music City Center where you can walk and look out a window and see what that green roof looks like. Um, the beehives that are up there. Um, uh, there is a 450,000 gallon uh, cistern on the front uh, front. Um, I think it's the the northeast corner of that Music City Center and that captures stormwater runoff from that entire site. And then they pump water out of that to use to irrigate all their trees and their, their plantings around there. Um, incredible environmental environmentally friendly green infrastructure features of the Music City Center. It's a, it was a great project.
2: Okay, Roger. So um, uh, Nashville has obviously changed a lot since 2010. And um, our region, it continues to develop um, so we're seeing a lot more permeable space change to impermeable space. Um, one of our listeners, Natalie, uh, had a question. Uh, how do you adjust floodplain policies and practices in a city uh, county that continues to develop rapidly?
1: Well as long as we you know the, the, the continued development uh, if there's a if there's an issue or a problem or a or a concern about any aspect of our policy or our our stormwater uh, management regulations or our or our floodplain um, uh, ordinances, um, it, it pretty much comes up. You know, we 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 encounter, we know when those problems occur, and we we do a very thorough job of tracking um, the, the issues that we think cause concerns for us. And some of them may be um, issues that uh, it, we don't want to be placed in a in a situation where we're where we're not in total compliance with the National Flood Insurance Program. So. We constantly monitor and keep a list of those things, and we are in the process right now, over a good bit of this past year, uh, have been doing what we do. Every couple of years or so, we do a full-blown, you know, let's take a hard look at our regulations, and and if there are some of those issues that are listed on our big list, we keep a list. Um, then we uh, we begin to do some rewrites and things like that, and it's what what has led us. Uh, in some cases, with our with our five manuals, um, uh, there are there are issues and items in some of those manuals that that need uh, need updating. Um, in some cases, for example, you know the last time we updated a couple of the manuals was in 2016 with the implementation of the whole green infrastructure requirement. Uh, so so we go through a process, and that that process um, produces a draft document that then is distributed to uh, all the different departments in the city. We go through, um, we go through a process of, of public uh, notice on those um, to make sure that everybody that's, that has an interest uh, and is tracking these kinds of things can have an opportunity to look at the kinds of, of, of modifications we're making to those. So it's a, it's a regular process for us to, to keep up with, with um, where we may need to do some tweaking to our regulations or our ordinances.
0: That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for answering that. Uh, so I think to wrap up, we've got a few more just quick questions that, that folks um, wrote in about. I know one thing that people wanted to know was, um, you know, we get different complaints or people have questions about stormwater issues in their community. How can they contact Metro Water if they see an issue that might need to be addressed? I know this is something that, that comes up a lot.
1: <clears throat> right. Um, that's the number right there on the screen so um so we have a dispatcher at metro uh the number six one five eight six two forty six hundred somebody's gonna have to teach me how to turn these things off okay eight six two forty six hundred it's going to give you some options to select and option number four is a stormwater related issue so if there's any kind of uh, a problem um if you if you if you're driving down a street and you see a storm, a storm drain, that's, that's come off, uh, it's missing. Um, I found one one day that's just kind of cocked up about three inches. Um, uh, and so I, I literally, I just grabbed my cell phone and called 862-4600 and left a message, um, that, uh, uh, that there was a problem with a, with a, a, a gutter inlet, um, uh, that, um, that needed to be reinstalled properly. Um, uh, it was a safety issue. Uh, but even if you have questions like if there's, if there's, if you detect that there's, there's a a large tree down across a, um, uh, an area that impacts the flow in that Creek, uh, if there's some debris blocking a bridge, um, uh, even if there's, if there's kind of flood, if the if the creeks have been high and there's debris that's washed up in a greenway area, they may may want to call and, and, and let someone know about that. We don't maintain all the creeks in the in Davidson County. Uh there's there's three hundred and forty some odd miles of creeks in Davidson County. Uh we, we occasionally get calls from people that say, you know, um my neighbor put all of his tree tr- tree trimmings in the creek in the backyard, and now it's in my yard. Well, that's that's a problem between you and your neighbor. We we can't maintain all the creeks in town, but if there's we do maintain the crossings. Uh, if there's material blocking a bridge crossing or a culvert under the road in front of your house, you know, give us a call. We'll 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 come uh, check that and, and get it cleaned out. We actually maintain many of the the um, the roadway uh, ditches in town that are in right away. way uh, if you've got a problem with a ditch that runs down the front of your house or your driveway culvert is collapsed or is too small or something wrong with it give us a call because that's mm-hmm. part of part of the the the, the, uh, the the features around the city system that we do maintain so yeah. call that number and, and and you can get plugged into who you need to talk to
0: yeah, and I'll just add to that, that the compact works a lot with Metro Water. So sometimes when there are issues that Metro Water may not be able to address, we're able to be in in communication if it's something that that we as an organization are able to address. But definitely giving them a call and then figuring out sort of what the next steps are for that. Um, so to wrap up our conversation today, thinking back on, um, you know, 10 years since the flood uh, being this, this weekend, May 1st and 2nd, um, there's a lot that the city has done obviously on all of these policies to be more resilient to flooding events moving forward as an individual um what can we be doing to help promote these practices the implementation of these practices are there things that people should be doing at home that can kind of help um reinforce the work that you all are doing at the city level uh
1: there is i mean obviously Rule number one: Never dump anything in a, in a in an inlet. If you've got a storm storm drain, a stormwater inlet in your front yard, don't don't ever dump anything in there because it goes straight to the creeks and the rivers. Um, uh, it's it's not uncommon for us to get a call from somebody saying that, that that my neighbor is dumping leaves down his inlet, or you know those kinds of things just necessitate that we send a crew out to to clean them out. Always just respect your your drainage around your neighborhood. Um, uh, never never dispose of leaves or grass clippings in your stormwater inlets. Um, again, we talked a little while ago about the regulated uh, residential infill. If you live in a house and you want to do something uh, that reduces the amount of runoff from your site, uh, you can reduce impervious surface and maybe in your, your home uh, lot, your your the parcel that your home uh, uh, occupies. Um, you can go to some of these metro uh, features um, you can do a Google search for regulated residential infill in Nashville, and it'll provide a lot of different kinds of activities that you can do uh, that would, th- th- these are activities that we require a new house to conform to, um, but you could do it yourself. You know, you could install some a rain garden or install some rain barrels at your home. Um, you could install some of those stormwater, those green stormwater features, um, grassy swales to allow the water to infiltrate, soak down into the grass instead of running off. Uh, so those are some of the things. Like I think, just by getting, being <clears throat> being a good green neighbor, you know, and and doing things to to kind of uh, uh, help your home and and your lot and your yard to 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 soak in more water than than what runs off.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. And again, that's where you know we work with you all at Metro Water a lot to help with residential rain gardens, um, nativization of areas tree plantings like we were mentioning earlier all those things to make our our land as spongy as possible to soak in as much as Mm -hmm. much water as we can so we'll share some links about our rain garden manual uh, rain barrels all those other ways that kind of on a small scale at home you can start to implement some of these practices and and really Mm -hmm. help make our whole city more resilient so um thank you roger today for joining us and giving this this overview of the 10 years since the flood and i know um Like I said at the beginning, there was a lot of um, events and programs that were going to be happening, marking the 10 years since the flood. And, you know, unfortunately, all of those were canceled. And so I think it is still a good time to look back and remember uh, what happened and then what we've done since then. So um, we appreciate you taking some time today to to talk with us about that. So
1: glad to do it. Thank
0: thank you you so so much.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's interview. We look forward to seeing you again in the River Center in downtown Nashville soon. Until then, thanks for listening, and we hope to catch you next week with a new episode of River Talks.